happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in fabulous Missoula, Montana, where we are reporting from a very smoky Missoula, where the air quality right now is hazardous. Um, I'm sorry, it's just unhealthy, which is a an upgrade from the hazardous air quality we had in Missoula just 48 hours ago. This is episode 64 of the Edtech Situation Room. It's September 6, 2017, and joining me tonight to talk educational technology, as always, is Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you doing? Good evening, Jason. I'm delighted to be joining you from a, a cool Oklahoma evening where my wife and I got to go on a little hike tonight at our local park and see the sunset, and it is a... A beautiful, uh, beautiful, cool evening. I'm, I'm very thankful given all the hurricane stuff happening. We got friends in Puerto Rico and all your fires and everything else. So, hey, everybody, travel Oklahoma. It's, it's a place without natural disasters right now. So, glad, <laughs> glad, glad to be here. Although that's a, that's not a great tagline. Come here, no natural disasters. Yeah, but just for today. I'm sure tornadoes, <laughs> tornado season will bring new headlines. So stay tuned. Yeah, absolutely true. So. Um, for those of you that are listening or joining us for the first time, the Tech Situation Room is a podcast where we take um, uh, technology headlines from the last week and put them through an educational technology lens. And if you're interested in any of the articles that source our podcast discussion, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, where all of our links are posted each week including a few links that we probably didn't get to in any given week as we tend to um, you know, discuss these things in detail. And, of course, this week there's a lot of interesting technology news going on while we jump right into this. Um, Wes, should we go iPhones first or should we go technology teacher sponsor ethics first? I'll say iPhones. Let, let's go okay. there first. So. Um, well, Let's start off with there's going to be an event next week, and uh, my understanding is that it's the first event in the Steve's Job Theater, which is on the new Apple Spaceship Campus um, in California, and so um, that's a very exciting piece. I'm looking forward to seeing the inside of that for the first time. Um, there have been it's been going on for three years, I think, is the building of that building, the massive Spaceship Campus that Apple's been building there. Um, but, of course, the headlines have been less about the campus and more about the what is being called the iPhone 8, which is the next uh, uh, phone in line. And before we get into the latest rumors about the iPhone itself, one of the things that's an interesting part of this discussion is that people perceive that this is a kind of a do-or-die moment for Apple. Of course, everyone perceives that every Apple announcement is a do-or-die announcement for Apple. So I expect there to be an interesting new phone next week. I'm sure the phone will contain new features that are thoughtful and excellent, but um, I don't know if they can revolutionize the cell phone in 2017 in the way they revolutionized the cell phone in 2007. So even though it's the 10-year anniversary and there's a lot of nostalgia related to this, um, you know, I, I wouldn't expect anything revolutionary. Um, based on the released rumors of what appears in that phone, is there anything interesting uh, about the phone, West for you so far as an iPhone user? Well, definitely. Um, you posted, I think, the Guardian article from September 1st, expect a radical iPhone redesign for its 10th anniversary. And then the Verge article from September 6th, three things that will never be the same after iPhone 8. And I would say definitely wireless charging. Uh, one of the articles, I think the first one in the Guardian makes the point that, you know, Apple claims we've changed everything and, and they really can't do that each time because it's incremental. But when you add up a bunch of incremental changes, it really can change the landscape. So the idea of wireless charging, uh, the reality of it, is is pretty exciting. Uh, so I would say that's probably the most significant thing. I don't know if, if you have challenges with your charging cables. We've been just shredding cables somehow at our house. I'm kind of, like, amazed. Like, how do these things go through so much, you know, torture to end up needing to be replaced. And it's also been irritating, you know, that some of the third-party cables, even the anchor cables that we purchased, haven't worked consistently with all of our phones. Right. So uh, the thought of, of a wireless charging where that's just not even an issue, of course, we'll need, you know, charging bases. But I'm excited about that. And the other thing that it talks about is this bezel-less, you know, front and saying that 
as we've seen with other kinds of technologies, other companies like Samsung have beaten Apple to this, but they may be the ones to really bring that mainstream, bring that into everyone's consciousness, and sort of set that as the new normal for smartphones. So I think even just the picture that they have of Instagram, you know, and seeing just how much larger it is. Uh, and I <laughs> be interesting, I know you're going to talk about uh, Manush Samarodi's new book, probably pretty interesting to see how many minutes we're all spending on devices and how many minutes on that smartphone versus that laptop versus the tablet. I know it's just a huge amount of time for me. And so the better that small smartphone screen is, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's shifting normal and it's, it's happening, happening gradually. But, um, hey, if you don't want to experience gradual change, just, you know, wait like three generations before updating your phone. And it'll be like, whoa, you know, look at, right. look at what's happened. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. However, I'm, I'm guessing that this will not be drawing you away from your Android ecosystem where you're, you're pretty happy. And uh, do you have a bezel-less experience now with, uh, you have the Pixel phone? Is that what you're using? No, I'm, I'm using an, an older Galaxy Note 4. And I, I think the bezel-less thing is interesting, but I've never really understood the, um, kind of race towards high pixel density screens that seems to be dominating the cell phone market right now. And Apple, to their credit, to this point, has actually uh, been very cautious about this because they realize that super high resolution screens, large high resolution screens are also massive battery sucks. And so they've done a great job, I think, of continuing to increase the, the pixel density, their so-called retina display, which is a term that they coined to describe, it was the iPhone 4, maybe it was the 3, no, it was the 4, was the first with the retina display. And that's an interesting phenomenon, of course, because the the, the idea is, is that at a certain distance from your face, you can't see any of the pixels. And if you go, in my opinion, anything above that, it, it really is an un- unnecessarily high-resolution screen. But having used a, um, what's it, 25 so-and-so by 16 so-and-so phone, which is what this uh, older Galaxy Note 4 is, it's a beautiful screen, and I just don't know if it's worth the trade-off of battery life. In fact, the phone that I I have loved most with that has been just a regular HD screen, the 13 uh, 1366 by 768 screen, which I think is a is a fine enough resolution to watch video on the go. And so, if Apple decides that they're going to crank up the resolution of the screen as part of their big beautiful bezel-less screen, that does change everything, I think. And you'll start to see. Android manufacturers at the mid-end start to push more high-definition screens. And I, I, that seems kind of anti-Apple to me because it's going to come up with a big battery trade-off. But the thing that's always interesting about an Apple announcement is there could be something out of left field. There could be a new battery technology they're utilizing or something that um, you know, helps trade the high-resolution screen for better battery life. And so I think those innovations could make a really big difference. The other yeah. thing – go ahead. I was going to I was going to talk about price, right? Because yeah. we've mentioned this on the show before, but this rumor that we're going to be pressing or pushing a thousand dollars, I mean, isn't that amazing? We say this is a computer. Now you pay for it like it is a computer. It's not yeah. just a, a phone price, and so that's an interesting thing as far as how that's how that's shifted normal. But I guess right. they're really exploiting demand, right? When you can't get enough, you know, enough production quantity out of your your factories in china right. to meet demand i mean this is supply and demand right you increase price and because demand you know the market can can hold it so um i i think that we may have one of these in our house i think it'll probably be for my wife and like i think i mentioned we'll we'll you know downgrade or we'll not we'll upgrade the the domino of family upgrades will will swing down and just kind of pass dad by this time which will be fine but um Wow, thousand dollars, and definitely sign of the times, right? I mean, that's that's more expensive than probably most lap uh, many laptops that people yeah. are buying for kids yep. coming to school, going to school this year. Right. Well, and the other piece of this too that that is interesting about the cell phone is that I, I don't really think the two year uh, turnaround of phones is a really fair look at the market because I think only the nerds and those that are tech enthusiasts really do turn their phone around every year, every two years. But at the $1,000 price point, and if, if it was uh, just Apple, 
it's, it's a little more justifiable because I do think um, Apple hardware tends to last longer than the typical original equipment manufacturer phone. So in the case of a, let's say it's a, an LG phone, for example, if you're rocking an LG G2 or LG G3, um, you know, that hardware might not last as long as an iPhone because the Apple stuff is pretty famous for being a bulletproof and lasting a long time. But a thousand dollars is a pretty massive investment for something you're only going to keep around for, for even three or four years in comparison to the on subsidy phone from the cell phone carriers before subsidies left our ecosystem. And then even the original iPhone, which was priced $600, um, which was considered to be a very premium price in 2007. But that's a, a, a big jump in, in, in prices without a really clear scenario how long people are going to keep the phone. So, yeah, I'm I'm not super excited about that notion. And, of course, if Apple tips over $1,000, then Samsung's high-end phones will, will clearly go in that direction. It's likely that other major manufacturers of phones, I'm thinking mostly of Lenovo and, and LG on the Android side, will probably come up with a premium, what they call flagship phone that helps you know exceed that amount of money to increase profits but you know again apple can get it so obviously they are keeping market forces in mind but it, it's a real challenge and it also questions not necessarily if the mobile revolution is going to continue to expand access for folks but if at some point there will be kind of tiers of access like if you have a, a high-end device if that means faster internet speeds or better access you know that's a concern uh, kind of you know broadly for me as well Another thought that I have related to smartphones talking about our ed tech, um, you know, angle is how with the advances of smartphones, the, the common denominator, the lowest capability continues to rise as far as what phones are capable of. Um, and I don't know if this is if that accurate or not, but at our school, I'm definitely seeing Seesaw as the learning learning uh, journal digital portfolio app cross platform working on Android, working on iPhone being an incredible tool. I mean, this is one of the challenges of BYOD is okay. Bring whatever you want. Yes, you can surf the web, but you know, how are you going to interactively participate in learning with your BYOD device? Right. And, um, you know, at our school, we definitely, um, I think have, uh, I think some, some work to do in terms of, of opening up people's minds to the constructive possibilities of smartphones to, you know, create and make and interact and, you know, be transformative in a, in a very positive way for learning. I think that, I don't know how many other people run into this, but we've got quite a few folks, I think maybe seeing the glass as more half empty rather than half full when it comes to phones in the, in the hands of teenagers. And so <clears throat> I really am excited at at what Seesaw is able to do and the ways in which it can level the playing field for whatever device you have. Um, you know, I think we need to be very attentive to digital divide issues. And while we tend to get all excited and, you know, fall over ourselves with whatever the latest Apple news is, the reality is most students are not going to be having that, that latest device. Of course, that depends on demographics and, and things like that. But anyway, it's just, uh, it, I'm, I'm not only excited to see whatever the latest and greatest thing for Apple's, you know, new new iOS, and I am excited with iOS 11 to see, I think, uh, QR codes coming native to the phone, like being able to scan that out of the camera app is what I've understood. I haven't run the beta, but that's that's huge, right? Because that's one of the things we've encouraged folks in iPad Media Camp to do for years, you know, install QR code reader. It's, you know, it's a game changer. It should be an important part of how you help students quickly get to content and avoid distraction, et cetera. So I'm, I'm excited with the continuing advance of the smartphone to see, you know, kind of where everybody else kind of gets raised. And, and a lot of that has to do with apps and function because it's not just, you know, Hey, I've got a camera. That's all I need. Or I've got the web. That, that's all I need. You know, I, I think from a, from an educational standpoint, we definitely need apps and platforms with greater interactive possibilities and, um, you know, seeing the continued march of the smartphone and, you know, processor speed and, and all those kind of things. Um, Hopefully it's gonna, hopefully we'll be able to open up more folks' minds to the, to the constructive uses of that for learning and not just, you know, seeing it as something that needs to be put away because, you know, we're doing serious learning here. I think we, you know, you and I and, and probably the, everybody who's listening to this show does a lot of serious learning on their smartphone. It's not, you know, just a frivolous device for social media distraction. 
And then one other thing, uh, a question for U.S. I, I do expect them to announce that the High Sierra, which is the next version of Mac OS, is probably going to be out of beta here pretty quick and released in devices maybe in September, maybe in October. Do you expect or, or suspect anything else announced next week uh, other than a phone? I don't know. Honestly, this time, usually I'm a little bit more onto the, the rumor sites and perhaps it's because of, of hurricane news and, you know, other kinds of things going on. I haven't been as attuned to it. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm very interested to see what Apple is going to do on the AI front. And so yeah. anything to do with Siri, uh, anything to do with television, I think the main thing people are expecting with Apple TV is just that it's going to be a 4K phone and that, or 4K, sorry, Apple TV. And that's it, which is really not that exciting because it's kind of like 3D television. Like, do you really need 4K television? Um, but I, I think that the innovations around user interface and user input are a huge deal. You know, I am, I'm doing a lot of, um, verbal transcription, you know, speech to text with, with my iPad, with email, with my phone, with, with texting and email. And, uh, as I've, you know, configured and set up Apple TVs at school for many of our teachers, um, of course, this is when nobody's in the classroom, but you know, I'm putting in our, our emails and passwords and things like that with voice using the remote control. So yeah. I would expect Apple to continue iterating with that. I don't have any, you know, rumor site links or anything like that pointing to a huge jump, but that side of things I think is significant. And um, again, we're all kind of used to the keyboard and, you know, children of the, of the typewriter. We're used to that input sure. device. And I think we probably could be underestimating and undervaluing the importance of alternative input technologies to productivity um you know and that and so i I would be excited to see something advanced in that in that regard because i would think we're going to see more than just a 4k apple tv i think there'll be something else there but i don't know what it'll be yep awesome okay well um where shall we go next well, uh, I don't know. I mean, we, I definitely want to talk about the, the article as far as the, the brand name teacher stuff, but, um, why don't you take, talk to us a little bit about, about Chromebook? You've got a, an Android sure. headline there. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, illuminate those, those folks of us who are not as Android oriented on what is, what is happening in Android world. So first, I should be really clear about something that that something that I have uh, and I tend to do this every couple of every seven or eight months. But um, I've now moved largely to the Chrome OS for 60, 70 percent of my my daily interaction. And part of that's because um, I've been able to find the right tools to make Chrome work for me or Chrome OS work for me in, in, in my day job as, as supporting students as part of my work at the Montana Digital Academy. But I own a couple of Chromebooks and then I own a couple of old computers that I have cloud ready, which is a, a Chromium OS, which is uh, about 90% of what a Chromebook is, minus a couple of features that I've been able to utilize it as well. And one of the really great things about um uh, the uh, latest Chromebooks is that they're, they're able to access the so-called Google Play Store on Android, which is a, um, you know, two million app, uh, ecosystem that allows you to install a wide variety of apps on, on the Chrome operating system. And so I have two devices that are able to do that. And I think it's really a game changer because it provides so much functionality to that otherwise scaled back OS. But still keeps, you know, the fast Chromebook um, architecture, the excellent app store, which is is better than everything uh, except for the iOS uh, 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 app store. So there's a, a really interesting, you know, convergence of things here, and I could certainly see a, a, a reason why schools would want to adopt Chromebooks with Android apps because they could push out a variety of interesting apps that add functionality to these really great devices. And to give you an example of this. Um, this is a, an, an older platform now. I think this is a three-year-old device. Um, this is a, a Chromebook Flip from Asus. Um, I was able to get a dirt cheap from a pawn shop, but, um, and it's a tablet. Um, yeah, define uh, dirt cheap. What, what did that look like? Uh, it was $110. So, and nice. this is the original $300 item. And I almost bought one a couple of years ago because I broke my Chromebook pre of training and then I ended up fixing it with literally some duct tape. But, um, the, uh, what's cool about the flip is that it is a 10 inch, um, laptop, which itself is not a great laptop, but it has the feature that it has a beautiful touch screen 
that you can access. And then, of course, um, you know, you can put it in tent mode or in presentation mode or the full tablet mode, and then it runs Android apps. And so that's a great way then to kind of create a tablet out of, of what you're trying to do. And so that's always been of, of incredible amount of interest to me. But um, part of it is that I've just really loved you know, how sleek and fast Chromebooks are, even on relatively modest hardware. This is an ARM chip or a not an Intel chip that runs things pretty fast. The only thing this doesn't have is the four gigabytes of RAM, which is what I always recommend with a Chromebook is get as much RAM as you can. But this thing is a very effective device. And considering it was, you know, dirt cheap relative to its, its retail cost, that's been a, a great kind of tablet alternative for me. Well, the good news is, is that um, uh, it took... Google a long time to figure out how to put Android apps on Chromebooks. And in fact, the, the majority of Chromebooks, um, even after the date, they said that all Chromebooks bought after this date, it was a date in 2016, would um, have Android apps on them eventually. They're starting to catch up with that promise, but a majority of, of, of new Chromebooks don't at this point. But they're releasing update after update after update that's making this a, a better user experience. For example, being able to resize the windows uh, of the applications or the apps wasn't a part of the early builds of Chrome OS. And now that they're kind of figuring out what they're doing and also encouraging developers to make tweaks to their code before they put them in the Play Store, that's a reality. Um, also, the ability of, of apps to go full screen or in a window mode is also something that's now starting to appear on the most stable of Chromebook builds. And, um, you know, I, I I do get asked recommendations a lot of what I would purchase if, if I were to get devices for a one-to-one -one classroom or maybe, say, a um, one device for two or three kids. And I always think the answer is somewhere, you know, a couple of here, a couple of this and a couple of that. Like, uh, if you can get everyone one device, that's great. But if you can't get that having you know a handful of iPads, a handful of Chromebooks, maybe um, uh, access to you know laptops with full Windows or Mac OS on there would be great. But I think it's kind of all of the above to be the perfect piece. So this is evolving quite quickly, and at some point, you know, a Chromebook becomes a lot more functional, in my humble opinion, when it can access um, that app store. So that's the big news for this week, and a lot of, of Android and Chrome nerds are pretty excited that that's becoming a, a more stable reality. Another article that you had dropped in, uh, and thanks for doing such a, a fine job with our, our little, little less of a contributor, uh, but Recode September 6th podcasting podcast, podcast network Gimlet Media has raised another $5 million this time from ad giant WPP. I think it's something like 12. they've raised in the first um, you know, part of this year, uh, $15 million around last month, so $27 million total funding. Uh, what do you what do you make of this? Do, should should we be doing some advertising and uh, cashing in on the podcasting popularity of of, the, of of this medium? Clearly, Wes, it's time for you and I to approach seed funders and see if we can't do like a ten million dollar a round. Like it seems like that would be you know the the place to go. Um, I. I've never understood why podcasting hasn't taken off more. Um, I've been a loyal podcast listener for, oh, it's been this long. It has been this long. Um, uh, 13 years, I think, I've been listening to more podcasts than I consume any other media. And as I've, I've, I've joked, uh, well, seriously joked in the past, you know, I do have a couple hundred podcasts that I do have on my app. I don't maybe don't listen to more than than 20 or 30 in any given week. And a lot of them are smaller news type items. But um, I Gimlet Media, which is a wonderful experiment, um, a former uh, this American Life reporter and Planet Money reporter, Alex Bloomberg, is the CEO of Gimlet Media. And in fact, uh, the first season of his first podcast was called Startup, and he chronicled his evolution as he started this company that's now apparently worth, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars. I think the 75 or $65 million was the rough worth of that company. And he's now employing, you know, I think over 100 people in their offices in, in New York City. And that's an extraordinary growth pattern for this just being a, a, a you know, two-year-old two project. The reason why this is interesting to me is because there is so much money around developing high quality content on podcasting. Yes, there are thousands of podcasts that are just like this podcast that are intended for a relatively small audience of 
um, you know, kind of a narrow focus. You know, we're, we're not going to make it on any iTunes top 10 list, but we certainly have people that, that, that download the podcast. We have people that tune in live every week. Um, shout out to Peggy George. Um, we have folks that, um, you know, that, that, that listen and give us feedback. It's a great part of this. And Wes and I don't think do this for the audience. I think we do it for the hour we get to spend together every week talking through the news. But the bottom line is, is that there but is. It's, it's about being with Marta and Peggy too. Don't, don't, yeah, don't absolutely. forget that. Yeah, there absolutely. Too. Well, and, you know, we have this interaction back and forth with an audience that is is really, you know, I think quite, quite interesting. But, of course, that's a different model than, you know, uh, This American Life putting on a podcast or um, the Gimlet Media folks. But, you know, it's just really interesting to me that radio won't die. It's just going to reinvent itself in the form of, of podcasting, I think. And so um, I'm glad they're doing well. I'm a, a voracious listener of at least six of the podcasts on that network. And I'm really excited that it's 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 getting money and that people are, are tuning in and, and patronizing sponsors that, um, uh, you know, that, that make that podcast content possible. What are your favorite Gimlet Media podcasts, if I can ask? I do love um, I do love Startup. Um, I've, I've been a listener to that since day one. And the first season, I only got into it about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear about it until two-thirds of the way through. And I, I binged listened to pretty much the entire, um, the entire uh, group of early episodes. I was so into it because it's just such a compelling and smart story. And by the way, um, that podcast, the Startup podcast, has been optioned for a series this fall where um, uh, they there is a, a, a startup, uh, uh, it's a sitcom that I can't remember which major network is taking it on. And um, Zach Bramp will pay, play Alex Bloomberg as a, you know, a, a guy that's trying to start up a business, which is just mind blowing to me. That was one of the interesting episodes last season where they were talking about um, Hollywood options and, and how that's turned into an income stream for them. And that's true of other podcasts as well, but some of them are actually kind of coming uh, to fruition. So that's pretty interesting. Um, other podcasts on um, the Gimlet Network, Reply All was their first non-startup podcast, excellent podcast where uh, Gimlet picked off a couple of, I think, um, uh, th- I want to say some Boston public radio personalities that were doing a similar show there, but Reply All is really great. Um, and I'd strongly recommend, I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the podcast here, but a couple weeks ago they had a great two-part series where one of the hosts was targeted by a tech support scammer, and the guy struck up a conversation with him and started researching the group and actually went to India and met with the company that was scamming people out of money. It was one of the most extraordinary nonfiction podcasts I've ever heard. It was really, really, really well done. Um, and so I would definitely recommend um, that particular podcast. Um, let's see. Sampler is a great podcast where it just it, it samples uh, what people like to listen to in other podcasts. That's about as meta as it gets. Um, the Pitch, which is kind of a Shark Tank uh, uh, wannabe, but is in uh, kind of smaller companies, smaller products. And then um, this one's a, a little more contrived, but twice removed is a family history show where um, uh, they bring in usually someone that's of, you know, uh, some sort of popularity in some circles and traces their family history to find a very distant relative uh, of theirs who's sitting in another room. They kind of walk them through their family tree. So, again, really well done, well thought through, well written uh, podcast. And so. Um, yeah, I'm really excited that this environment exists. I'm really excited that it's continuing to exist. And if you see it, you know, uh, uh, the, the impact elsewhere, for example, Audible now has a series of, of radio shows that they offer only on the Audible service that is a kind of highly produced podcast content um, that uh, it's been very interesting to listen to those there. Um, uh, of course, you know, newspapers and media properties across the Internet are also publishing their own podcasts, and I think that's a, a great phenomenon. And more traditional radio groups like NPR. Uh, NPR produce a series of wonderful podcasts, and it's really a pleasure to listen to those professionals then uh, you know, get to new audiences um, in ways they wouldn't have been able to before. So I'm still a huge fan, and maybe that makes me a huge nerd, but I, I think that podcasting is pretty sweet. Yeah, it's not casual. It's just it's just a correlation. So. <laughs> uh, 
I am subscribing to twi- Twice Removed. So their latest episode, Jenny says, a 93-year-old man takes a DNA test and everything changes. So I've been uh, the one saying 23 and me may be a little, little too risky. So, yeah, we'll just have to check it out and see. And I, I'll say that podcast recommendations have been one of the best things about our show. You know, you were the one who introduced me to um, – uh, Manoush Samarodi, um, note to self, note to self. Thank you. And I got to watch her Ted talk this week and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how we're influenced and the ways in which we, we change and the importance of ideas and exposure to ideas. So podcasting is one of those things that has been a, an exciting adventure for me, I guess, since probably 2005 and I, I think that, especially on the creation side, it continues to be a very long tail type thing that, that yep. we just don't have that many folks, you know, creating. And perhaps we'll always have, you know, far more consumers, watchers, listeners than we'll have creators. But I think there's just, just still so, so many more exciting connections to make. And it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have to involve, you know, tons and tons of folks. There's, there's big differences in mainstream media and, and amateur media. And I kind of, my <clears throat> grandfather on my, on my mom's side was a, was a ham radio guy. You know, they, they took this whole trip to Mexico when my mom was in high school and they just stayed with people that he had connected with via ham radio, you know, and he helped with different emergencies, you know, cause hams would connect people. And I don't know if there's any, yeah. Can 23 and me tell me that where's the ham radio internet podcasting gene that did I inherit that? But, um, it's it's really it's amazing and i i think that huh, the tremendously transformative power of social media and technology to enhance our lives and to really you know deepen our relationships but but just also our learning and our growth it is something that that more people are certainly experiencing via facebook instagram social media platforms like that but i think there's a depth and a qualitative difference in the kinds of connections that you can make via podcasts, especially in the educational realm. You know, shout out to uh, Bob Sprankle, Cheryl Oaks, Alice Barr, The Seedlings, one of my favorite, you know, podcast shows of all time. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if anybody's done research around that, but I know that that continues to be a really important part of my learning. And I think that there's an important imperative for us to encourage others to be connected, not because we want to be more distracted and less attentive to our face-to-face relationships, but because just in the same way we would go to a library and we would do a microfish search or whatever, you know, to be able to encounter new ideas that could open up our minds and possibly, you know, change what we do and, and the ways we view the world podcasts can do the same thing. So right. I appreciate you sharing those recommendations and would love if anybody wants to, to shout out to us via Twitter with the EdTechSR hashtag or at EdTechSR on Twitter or either of our Twitter handles, uh, Tech Savvy Teach for Jason or W Fryer for me. Um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing when you've got folks sharing interests and passion on different topics and then being able to say, and if you'd like more, you know, then you can read this book, listen to this podcast. It, it really, it's, it's a big, big part of my quality of life today. So. Well, I want to add one other thing about, about podcasts too, that it is an extraordinary content trove for classrooms, uh, especially in an era where a lot of our, our students have devices uh, uh, with them you know, 23 hours a day, giving pointing them in the direction of interesting, compelling content to help spark discussion, research, creativity, projects, uh, future-looking uh, pieces is, is extraordinary. And every, every week I listen to the Planet Money podcast, and as a former social studies teacher myself, there's not a week that goes by that I'm not stunned about a story told on Planet Money that would make an extraordinary story in my own uh, my own face-to-face classroom, uh, uh, you know, now seven years past. And, um, you know, not to mention, um, you know, for teachers that are looking to keep up on their content, it's a really excellent way to find things in your content area and keep fresh or get exposure to new ideas. And just in a way that, that, that previous to now was just not available. So definitely take advantage of that as an incredible content trope. Well, Jason, I would love for us to to dive into this article we mentioned, uh, the Silicon Valley 
New York Times article about brand name teachers. Um, so I'll, I'll throw the, the question to you. This was New York Times, uh, September 2nd, Silicon Valley Court's brand name teachers raising ethics issues. Shout out to Peggy George who had uh, pointed this out to me and I got on an EdTech chat, I think Monday night that was taught, was talking about this. Um, summary. Basically, teachers that were interviewed were misled. The reporter did not let them know they were really wanting to do a critical piece. But it highlights how different teachers, especially those with large followings on social media, uh, have accepted different kinds of uh, gifts, different kinds of, uh, of free donation, whether that's software or furniture or other kinds of things. And so raising ethics issues on whether or not teachers should be doing that, they should be promoting those kinds of things and, um, you know, kind of taking a, a negative look at that. So what, what are, what are your overall responses to this, Jason? I know you've been reading up about this and kind of following the hubbub that's followed this publication. Well, there is a lot of blog posts on this, including several folks that, um, you know, or some of the folks that were quoted in the article. And I would encourage you to start digging around to some of the debate related to this, because I do think it brings up a number of issues. But I, I guess the, my first inclination about this was that I'm not sure why um, this is as a special concern for teachers that are advocates for technology, because I think some of this behavior um, exists well beyond um, this kind of narrow band of teachers. There are, um, you know, conferences you might go to. There is lots of, of, of shindigs at those uh, conferences where there is a lot of food and drink being purchased, which was something specifically called out by the New York Times article. Um, and, yeah, there may be people in the audience that are, you know, our customers of X, Y, and Z company that are providing the drinks. But that happens at administrator conferences. That happens at uh, you know, driver's, driver's license bureau conferences. Those happen at, at a variety of, of, of different pieces. And I think that, that there are some, some hazy lines here, but I was taken aback by why it's the ed tech teachers that are, 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 are being kind of held to this, or held to this, this criticism um, by the New York Times. But a couple thoughts here. The first one, I should say full disclosure, um, I'm not currently being compensated or provided anything by any company. Um, I have used products in the past on loan before, um, mostly to get feedback to a company. It wasn't something I utilized in, in, in public media at all. Um, I've done reviews for companies before, taken products on and provided honest feedback to companies where, again, I returned the product back, um, but it was something that I gave feedback on. And I took advantage of uh, tech company grants where oftentimes they put in equipment or software in my classroom in exchange for me reporting back or publishing socially um, results of products that I had done, although this was in the pre-social or social media expansion days before 2010 or so when I was still in the classroom to do that. And um, I don't really know how you're able to provide an expansive community of teachers where the most advanced teachers among us are able to um, to get connected to people at technology vendors um, and ultimately take on, um, you know, the evolutionary process of adopting these clever tools in the classroom without there to be some interaction with a company to be able to do that. And so uh, you know, there may be some, some hazy lines here, but I don't feel like the article fairly characterized the real situation. And I'm sure there are plenty of teachers uh, that are, and I'm going to put teachers in quotation marks there because I think this applies to college professors. It applies to people that are more independent contractors. It applies to people in consultancy positions. It applies to administrators. It applies to a lot of different folks. But um, I, you know, I have no problem, honestly, with the Microsoft uh, educator programs. I have no problems personally with the Google um, innovator programs. I have no problems personally with what um, Smart does or, or what, frankly, any of the companies do to try to get teacher advocates in the community that utilize um, and, and promote their products. Now, that said, you mentioned earlier, Wes, the notion of, um, you know, full disclosure on a blog, for example, that if you are compensated from a company, you should probably note that. In fact, there are FC, FTC rules that uh, it's a little hazy what they apply to web properties. But generally speaking, you're supposed to be above board about those sorts of things when you are a paid uh, sponsor or spokesperson for that. 
But, you know, I it's unfortunate that the debate had to come in the form of this New York Times article, because I think there's so much more there. What are your thoughts, Wes? You know, this is a really important digital citizenship conversation to have because we are manipulated or folks attempt to manipulate us all the time when we open our eyes and look at media, whether it's print media, it's, you know, digital on our screen, it's on television, billboard, whatever. Uh, and so helping students, you know, become more aware of, you know, photoshopped images, body image. There's all, there's a whole host of different issues that really, I guess, maybe fit under media literacy as well as digital citizenship. But one of my thoughts about this, um, was, you know, I think our daughters that are teenagers are probably fairly savvy to this because, I mean, they watch all kinds of YouTubers about different things and the different products that they're doing, you know, Instagram. And I mean, I bet I could, I don't know that she would come on the show, but, you know, I bet I could interview Rachel, our, our 14-year-old, uh, because she's pretty pretty savvy and has talked about some controversies of, of I think, in, there, there's all these platforms, right? So they're Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, but but folks that are pretty big and, you know, pro- possibly not being as transparent or there's been issues around their promotion of products and things like that. Um, you know, we are in a, a different day where, you know, you're not going to have to be just in this super narrow group of folks that are that are picked by Hollywood to be on on movies or television or a sports superstar, you know, to be able to garner a lot of attention. So. I think there's different different sides of this to talk about. Um, definitely, am a, a fan of of transparency. Uh, I had put into the show notes a October 2009 post that I wrote about FTC mandating disclosure for bloggers, and you know, I remember at that time, you know, going ahead and post, you know, posting very clearly on my blog what kinds of affiliations that I had. I've worked for some different, you know, companies before. I stepped out of, uh, you know, traditional classroom education to work for AT and T, and was was uh, on my own for five years, you know, doing independent presentations and consulting, and then also, you know, doing some contract work for different groups. So um, I agree that it's not a val- very balanced perspective in the article. I definitely think it's a lesson learned if you if you look at, and I'll, maybe I'll even try to put some of the tweets in, uh, because some of the folks interviewed in the article were participating in this Monday night chat, and they included some screenshots of email that they've had from the author, or they had from the author in advance, and they really my interpretation, you know, felt misled that they were asked to really highlight how these ambassador programs were improving their classroom, et cetera. We always need to be very careful when we're talking to the media. Um, you know, I think that's a little bit of a higher profile issue for me now at an independent school than it was at a public school. But, you know, right. wherever you are, there's going to be a public relations office. There's going to be someone, you know, designated as the spokesperson, and we we need to be careful and we need to be in communication with those people so i would say this is probably a, a good a good note to self to you know just be wary of folks that are going to contact you for articles uh be in touch with whoever your communications public relations folks are uh, be aware that the things that you say, you know, can be taken out of context. And if you have an opportunity to ask people, and I've done this before with some written pieces or, you know, more like not, not obviously New York Times level stuff, but, you know, other like more magazines, you know, can I see that before you publish it? Can I look at that? Um, anyway, I think there's some cautionary tales here. And while we don't see nearly as many folks certainly blogging today in education as we do on social media, um, it's not a bad thing to, you know, have a website. We're talking about brand and digital presence and digital footprint. You know, have a site where you're able to share your connections and then think about a disclosure policy um, because it is important for people to know where you sit. We all have biases, uh, but not only do we need to be transparent from, I think, uh, it's the right thing to do standpoint, um, we also need to be aware of the laws and how those affect us. And that probably varies by state in terms of what people as public employees or state employees, you know, are allowed to accept and saying, oh, I had no idea, you know, is really not an excuse. So I, I think there's some good dialogue to come from this, but hopefully we, we can, you know, keep in mind um, how, how positive this can be. And I think that 
just like most things, you're going to have a whole range of, of situations where there's going to be bad outliers and there's going to be some really good ones. I think there are exceptional ambassador programs out there and wonderful, wonderful companies, you know, bringing educators together to share ideas, to be inspired. The, the, you know, obviously we can do this with social media, but when you do that in, in face to face, you know, there's, there's a lot of power there. So, uh, certainly not a balanced article, but an article that raises important issues for us to talk about, and probably not just with teachers, uh, probably with students as well, because these are things that they're encountering in their social media experiences. Well, and a message to administrators, too, that, you know, it is worth having a conversation with your teachers about if they're engaging in any of these types of programs, talking through what that exactly means and, uh, you know, who's sponsoring, you know, what that looks like. Um, again, I, I do feel like that that there is some hypocrisy a, a bit in these conversations because I think there is a lot of money that runs for schools, for example, that don't make it their way into the classrooms uh, uh, and to teachers themselves um, that, you know, uh, you know, why is it that this is barred and that's not barred, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, is that you have to have those conversations to be able to know those lines. And I think that's an important piece of this. And I, I think, Wes, you're absolutely correct. It also behooves us as educators to have these conversations with our students because it's just such a different game than it was 50 years ago in regards to what a sponsorship might look like, what compensation looks like, where media is compensated from. And I think that's an important part of this discussion as well. I'll say one more thing about this. I, my wife has observed this and, and I've noticed it as well that, you know, there are some websites where the person is so polished and branded and possibly it's, you know, they've outsourced the, the digital design of all those kinds of things. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that because, you know, I made my living for five years as an independent consultant. So, I, and I probably, you know, should have done a lot more with my own digital footprint, but there's a lot of really good sharing happening out there. And there are a lot of mixed lines. Eric Langhorst, who's been on the show a lot and is kind of a, a founder of, of the early versions of the EdTech Situation Room when we were doing an end-of-year show, uh, tweeted that he's had some verbatim lesson plans, word for word, you know, sold by somebody else without attribution on Teachers Pay Teachers. <clears throat> and so... It's a, it's a messy landscape and there are ethical issues to, to navigate, uh, in terms of, you know, I, I don't think we should go so far down the privacy surveillance paranoia road that we stop sharing altogether and, and we, we lose out on all kinds of beneficial experiences that we can have, um, to be inspired and to inspire others with ideas. But on the other hand, um, it's interesting to see you know, how commercial folks are. And certainly there's ethical lines that people have crossed, like the, the one I mentioned, as far as, you know, taking people's content and, and, and selling that. And and I don't know that there's something for us to take up on the EdTech Situation Room, but that whole thing as far as lines between, you know, what do I openly share and give away versus what do I sell? Right. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, but there, and there's a lot of roads for different people to follow. You know, we had a a teacher of the year at one of our schools when I was in Yukon who had more than replaced her income with a few reading lessons that she had written herself and put on teachers pay teachers. And she was having her first baby and going to stay home. And she had replaced her income from the classroom, you know, with what she was pulling in there. So right. I think there's a lot of important issues to talk about. And I don't know that teachers should think about having to feel like you have all of the all of this resolved and you have the quote answer, because I think as with many case studies and things that involve ethics, um, you know, there's a lot of shades of gray and a lot of good discussion to get into about, you know, what, what is the right thing to do? What is the legal thing to do? You know, is there a line? Where is that? Um, how, you know, is this something that will affect you as far as your choices? And certainly as consumers right. and participants in our economy, you know, this is why the FTC and others have regulations about this is they want folks to be forthright about the kinds of affiliations they have so that when you're hearing from somebody you trust, you know, you can understand if they are being paid, you know, or, you know, money is an influencer. And so that, right. that whole side of things is important to talk about. And I would have one other side note. To related to one of the problems that I, I, I know I faced, I'm guessing you faced as well, Wes, is that there isn't a lot of professional development for the 
years in this section of the educational world, right? Like I, when I go to ISTE, when I go to any conference really related to ed tech, there is a lot of interesting things there, but the, the pushing for me happens in talking to vendors and talking to other folks in the hallways, right? Because a lot of the presentations at, at those types of conferences aren't really intended for me. They're intended for kind of a different audience that happens to be attending that conference. And um, without, you know, meeting directly with the folks that are selling equipment or selling or renting software or, you know, finding folks like yourself that I can engage in conversations with at those conferences, um, I wouldn't really have any at least social professional development, right? Like my professional development usually involves a, a, a Google search and, and a lot of clicking. But the bottom line is, is that that's another piece here that, and I think that was mentioned in the article too, that you know, connections with these companies is super important, partially because it's, it's, it's an element of professional development that wouldn't otherwise exist for the most daring, advanced, or adventurous of teachers. And how are we influenced, right? Peers influence peer, you know, peers differently than others do. And yes. um, I think it's a wonderful thing that we've got so many teacher voices out there and folks, you know, trying things and sharing things. And yes, educational research is a great thing to take a look at. But the reality, and I think we had this article in the show notes a few weeks ago, you know, is that honestly, a lot of folks don't look at educational research. There's other things that that are that are influences as we make purchasing decisions and we look at you know, even strategies and lessons and things like that that we're going to do. And so uh, good conversations to have. Would you be willing to talk about your fake news article or the uh, the elite hacking, whatever, however you say that, you're going to educate us about some new lingo? Um, either one of those? I'm sorry, again. Uh, would you be willing to take on either your fake, the fake news article from The Verge or the, the hacking articles that you've got? Yes, in fact, I just brought the hacking articles because I was hoping we could talk about those. Two really quick hits here. Um, this is from The Guardian um, uh, last Thursday that there is a perception that uh, 500,000 pacemakers could be hackable on because they uh, are uh, there's able to take wireless updates on them in order to update the firmware. Um, in the pacemaker, and so a maker of these pacemakers has recalled 500,000 of them because they could be hacked and then nefariously modified in order to risk the health of the patient. And you're going to hear more and more of this, and of course the first thing I think about is my ongoing experiment with the Internet of Things in my own house, smart lights, smart voice assistants, smart plugs, um, no smart appliances yet, but that's certainly on the horizon um, it, for the broad uh, market, if not my house itself. Interesting to think about. And one of the things that doesn't seem to be really thought about by, and you'd think someone who's making a pacemaker would you'll be building very aggressive security into those those uh, devices. Apparently, it's not being particularly closely monitored by by some folks, at least. Um, and um, I know I, I wouldn't, you know, have fear about putting a pacemaker in if I needed that as a necessary health implement, but it does cause pause. Uh, any thoughts about that, Wes? Yeah, we all need to be need to be careful and thoughtful when it comes to that and uh, look for uh, for every IoT device. I would say, you know, look for something that has got an integration with uh, an Apple you know, Apple platform, uh, Google platform, you know, somebody who's just independent going their own way with an IOT device uh, and not explicitly talking about security and emphasizing it is probably not attending to security in the way they need to be. Right. Absolutely. So, and then the second article that was interesting, again, cautionary tale more than anything else is that um, apparently um, folks are being targeted on LinkedIn um, which is interesting as a social network. Um, I, I am active is probably a strong word, but I do maintain a presence on LinkedIn for no other reason than, um, you know, I, I like to have connections with other folks related to my career. But apparently there's been a series of uh, uh, hacking attempts going around where they're having people download um, kind of ill-fated uh, Microsoft Word documents that have nefarious code in them and scripts that can, you know, kind of wiggle their way into networks. And the idea is, is that if you're using LinkedIn, you're probably using context of work. 
Um, you download a nefarious document into inside a network. It can maybe infect a computer or create some sort of, of, of worm that replicates itself elsewhere. And so security researchers are increasingly warning people to be very cautious about downloading docs of, of, of an origin that you're not completely aware of. And so I can tell you that in the last two weeks alone, there have been seven or eight um, uh, attempts, not, it wouldn't be through LinkedIn for me, it was through work email, and I have two different work email addresses as I work on a college campus that has a separate domain for my specific program, so I have two email addresses, and between those two, I was targeted, I think it was eight times in the last two weeks with, you know, pretty standard looking scams, you know, click here for the new, you know, security download, um, your domain administrator is moving towards a new email server, click here to validate your credentials, all phishing scam attempts. And, you know, again, clicker beware. Definitely, definitely. Um, I'll mention a quick one. I know we're at the top of the hour. Um, Apple's real reason for finally joining the net neutrality fight, Wired Magazine, August 31st. Uh, basically Apple, you know, is getting more into media streaming and media production and they don't want to be left on the, on the slow lane. And so, uh, we did a whole show about net neutrality. Again, this is a huge important issue that we need to be talking to students about and, and sort of raising a generation to hopefully understand the importance of and need to fight for privacy, uh, net neutrality. And so anyway, that was kind of interesting, but it is good to see Apple joining, you know, Google and other companies in advocating for net neutrality. And it's interesting also as a side note to just see how the tech companies are kind of speaking out with voices, right? What we've seen with DACA, we won't go down that, that rabbit hole and talk a lot about immigration, but you know, we're having Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, these companies really uh, speak out and, and be vocal politically. I don't know if that's going to have effect, but it's definitely something I've, I've been seeing headlines about. So I'm glad to see Apple stepping on what I would consider to be the, the correct, uh, correct train when it comes to net neutrality. Excellent. Well, uh, shall we geek of the weekend? I'm afraid we should because it is the top of the hour. <laughs> okay. I'll start and I'll hand off you, Wes, to kind of uh, clear us away. So two quick things are pretty interesting. The first one is I mentioned this one a couple of weeks ago, but uh, on Monday, Manoush Samarodi's book, Bored and Brilliant, was released. Um, I'd actually pre-ordered it, so it appeared on my Kindle um, on Monday morning, and I did read the first few chapters, and so far it's as excellent as I expected. One of the things um, that I'm looking forward to, and I think it's chapter five or six, but in this week's episode of Note to Self, uh, which is the podcast that inspired the Bored and Brilliant book, they talked to the gentleman that, Wes, you and I talked about a year ago, the former Google engineer that... Um, Tristan, uh, Tristan. Yeah. Uh, that was noting that that a lot of apps were utilizing the same technologies and, and kind of brain hacks to get people interested in those apps that Vegas slot machine uh, designers utilize to keep people kind of gambling. And so I am Tr Tristan Harris. Tristan yeah. Harris. There you go. Um, and for those of you unaware, the Bored and Brilliant project is basically it was it was born out of the Note to Self podcast, but it was based on some interesting research that said that we had been losing our ability to to creatively think or to think divergently because we don't ever have the opportunity to be bored in our 24-7 media culture. And because the phone allows you an unlimited stream of information that is infinitely interesting, packaged in ways that are intended to get your attention, we may be losing opportunities for us to be bored and then ultimately brilliant, to think creatively, to think divergently, to think um, outside the box, which is stuff that tends to come according to a lot of neuroscience when we're otherwise not being consumed by interesting um, uh, tidbits. And so the Bored and Brilliant book available on Amazon and wherever finer books are sold. And um, Manoush is going to be in Seattle um, in two weeks. And God, I, I'm just not really a super fan kind of guy, but I'm thinking about flying over and seeing her wow. at the book signing because I just love her podcast and book so much. I love to meet her. Uh, and that's the most, that's the, the, by far, like I've never been to a comic con. I, I, I don't, I don't go to Lennox conventions or anything, but that would be kind of you know, super nerdum for me. So the bored and brilliant book available now for download or purchase on Amazon and other book retailers. And then the other thing I wanted to mention that something that I just installed the other day, but so far it's pretty amazing, but 
Um, Google, um, in their Google Suite for Education, speaking of major education vendors, has a new, actually, they've released a couple of really interesting enhancements to their their cloud storage system. The first one was a a month or two ago, they released something referred to as um, Google Drive and Sync. And I didn't put a link there, um, but it's available, I think, on the same uh, page. But Drive and Sync, what it does is that it allows you to obviously have a Google Drive, but then pick other folders on a laptop or desktop to back them up, kind of Carbonite style. And for those of you unaware of Carbonite as a product, Carbonite is a backup product that you just set it. It sniffs out um, where your documents are stored and keeps automatic backups in case you have a disaster with your laptop or desktop. A Google Sync does the same thing, but you just pick the folders and make some suggestions based on your usage patterns. Um, Syncs folders back to the cloud, and it's a little different in that if you, you know, you can delete things or not delete things, and you can set up complicated rules to be able to make sure that even if you delete something locally, it ends up being backed up on the cloud. But I've downloaded this on on my daily use computers, and now I have access to all my files. Maybe a tip. Maybe just me being weird. Um, I always keep a working folder on every laptop or desktop that I use. And instead of having my desktop fill up with crap, um, a stuff that I want to save obviously goes into my Google Drive or my what used to be my Dropbox Drive. Now it's all Google Drive. But for everything else, I just stick it into a working folder. And that way, if you know weeks or months from now, if I want to go back and try to find one of those old files that be sitting there, well, now those are all backing up to the cloud. And because I have unlimited storage with with G Suite for education, um, it can go you know as many pieces there as, as I want. So um, what Google File Stream is is that it takes up an idea that was originally introduced with OneDrive when Microsoft was going in that direction a few years ago. But I think this functionality has either disappeared or I don't understand how to use it. But uh, what Google File Stream does is it allows you to essentially host even a large Google Drive on a local computer, no matter what the space is because it doesn't actually store the file on your computer. It just streams it to you when you need it. So as an example of this, I was setting up a new Windows laptop the other day, um, and by new, I was an older one, I put Windows 10 on, and I wanted to download the particular uh, or a Google Drive, but there was only 128 gigabyte of SSD drive in there, and my Google Drive is, is, is 600 gigs in space. And a lot of it's old archives and old files and stuff, but it's huge, right? And I didn't want to download everything. And so what Google File Stream does is it puts the entire file structure on my computer. If I'm connected to the internet, it streams the file to me. And for some reason that, that seems like crazy magical to me, um, I, for example, double clicked on a video file and it opened up in VLC, my preferred player, and just started playing right away to me, like it, there was no lag or anything. And then you're able to right-click on files or even folders and have that be stored um, on your computer. So if you know you're going to be offline, airline flight, uh, bad Internet connection, you can put those files on your desktop in that folder. And then it works just like a regular Google Drive folder. So this was in beta. Um, I got into a late beta and played with it. It's now available to everyone with G Suite, uh, which means G Suite for education. It's a toggle you turn on. You download the app, it's good to go. But so far, really amazing and, and more advancements in the Google Drive ecosystem. Awesome. And uh, I went ahead and did, did two gigs of the week as well. My first one is Plow, which I don't know that we've mentioned before, and I've just started to invest in a little bit more. I've got a link to an About video. And, you know, not too many years ago, we were all using social bookmarking tools like Delicious and Digo, and some people are still using those as internet search and social media like Twitter evolved. I think a lot of us just kind of, you know, started not saving bookmarks and Googling things. And and I love a session that Jason uh, has done before about information trapping, saying we all need a way to trap information. Well, Plow is basically leveraging the value of crowdsourcing, and they have something called anchors, which are basically like tags. But you can look at, for instance, Digital Life. I don't know that they have an educational technology anchor, um, but different things that you're interested in. And so folks who are liking those things, it, you know, it's a little bit like uh, Nuzzle, which is an app I use for the uh, iPhone and, and iPad where it'll show 
articles that people I follow on Facebook and Twitter are sharing. And so it basically, you know, hey, if five people are sharing this, then maybe this is an art that I follow, then maybe that's an article that's of interest. Plow is kind of similar and allows folks to become trusted voices. And, you know, it's it looks it looks interesting because in our world of, you know, almost infinite information, filtering and having trusted voices and having tools that we can use to, you know, filter from the, the flood, right? This is the exo flood of all this data uh, is pretty important. And so I'm playing with plow and would encourage other people to check it out and let me know if you, if you're using it, if you like it, it doesn't seem to have a huge community around some of the anchors or topics that I've been following, but it definitely looks promising. I do not think they have an app for iOS. It looks like it's just a bookmarklet and I haven't yet got that whole workflow, you know, streamlined, but I've been playing with that. And then the next thing is an email client, which I think really is a game changer. Uh, I've been using that with my personal email and I'm going to be using that more with work email. It is called hop and uh, shout out to, um, Oh, uh, Johnny curriculum. Um, gosh, I'm going to blank. Uh, he's one of our organizers, uh, Jonathan Ashley. He's a principal down in Norman public schools and an organizer for the, uh, Oakla ed, um, uh, ed camp OKC. And he was at our iPad Palooza that had happened to OU. And I saw his tweet a, a weekend before last, I guess. And so anyway, it makes basically your email threads all be, look like instant messages and people don't have to switch platforms. It works with email, which is the common denominator. But one of the most amazing things about it, because on different email clients like Inbox and other things, you'll have these swipes that can increase your speed of being able to process through email. But I have the unsubscribe option. And for you know emails that you've received a lot of that are similar, you know, with just one or two swipes, being able to archive all those things, delete all those things. You can also delay stuff to have it email you later, but being able to do an, an almost one touch, you know, subscribe uh, and, and therefore keep your inbox clean. Um, it also takes everybody who's not in your contacts list and puts them in an other category. So we have Google with, with their inbox uh, tool and other things, you know, taking promotional emails, uh, social media and trying to group those things so that you can filter them differently. But I, I really like hop. I think it's great. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it hopefully increases my email productivity, which as much as I don't love email is an important skill and not something we are going to be able to escape, especially those of us working in educational technology, but in a lot of career fields. So Jason, where can the folks garner and glean more of your ed tech knowledge? Well, um, I am active on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, where I try to post links of things that I'm reading and thinking about and, and try to share those pieces with others. And of course, take advantage of the many great folks that do the same. And then I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, um, blog.ncc.org, where I am the tech-savvy administrator in residence and are available to do professional development for districts um, via NCC, www.ncce.org. What about you, Wes? I'm W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org, and I would give a shout-out to our school learning showcase where we posted some uh, feedback from a recent STEM and computer science uh uh, retreat that we did. And uh, I think every school should have a learning showcase to showcase innovative things that students and faculty are doing. And you can find that at showcase.cassidy, C-A-S-A-D-Y.org. Excellent. Well, this is the EdTech Situation Room where we are available uh, each Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. And I think that's like three 300 or, or 3 o'clock UTC something. I'll, I'll get that right some week. But we're here live uh, where you can find out links to the live show and join our, our live, I guess, studio audience uh, via the YouTube chat feature. Uh, we tweet out at, at EdTechSR where we're going to be pro, or, or broadcasting live. And a shout out to our um, folks that do join us live for part of that, that engaging conversation back and forth with us as hosts. 
And we post uh, this podcast um, on our website at techsr.com, where we also have links to all of our uh, weekly discussion topics. And, of course, this is available where all finer podcasts are aggregated. That includes iTunes, um, Stitcher Radio, and uh, almost every podcast app I've downloaded has us featured. And, of course, you can always ask Google Home to play the latest edition of the EdTech Situation Room podcast. So we wish you a wonderful week. We hope that wherever you're at in the United States uh, that you are safe Um, in light of the extraordinary weather we're experiencing, and we hope to see you next week. Adios.